Welcome to this week's Fit for Purpose podcast. This week we've got actually a very different guest perhaps to many of the other guests I've had on the podcast before. Today we're talking to Dr. Shane Gordon. He's part of an NHS that has helped really navigate this country through the challenges of the COVID pandemic. What we're going to talk about today is, is Dr. Gordon's work in the part of the NHS where he's based, which is East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust. His role there is Director of Strategy. And the Trust is now working with us on the levelling up goals and really looking at what levelling up means for an organisation like theirs in the NHS. And we're going to get into that in a second. But Dr. Gordon, perhaps before we get going, tell us a little bit about what East Suffolk and North Essex covers so the kinds of communities give people perhaps who are not so familiar with your bit of the world a sense of of who lives there and 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 the areas that they probably recognize the names of thank you very much justine uh it is lovely to be with you today uh on the podcast and also supporting uh the this is purpose uh and the wonderful work that you're doing um, please call me Shane, by the way, because Dr. Gordon I sounds far too formal. <laughs> okay. um, so, I, as you said, I'm part of uh, East Suffolk and North Essex Foundation Trust, which is a, an acute and community provider for Ipswich and East Suffolk and for Colchester and Tendring in North East Essex. Um, so we provide services to just under 800,000 residents in our area um, and those are services from um, community nursing through to therapies through to uh, emergency medical care uh, and planned care cancer services and some specialized services uh, in in gynecology and uh, spinal surgery for example and presumably the the health inequalities that you see locally to some extent also mirror the the wider inequalities of the communities that you are serving and it's fair to say isn't it that it's one of those parts of the country where actually there are some real divergences you've got some very affluent people and families that you're serving but you've also got some of the very most deprived communities um that that's right um so we uh in we're part of an integrated care system Uh, these new NHS organisations covering larger geographies um, and as is Suffolk and North East Essex and as an integrated care system we've prioritised addressing health inequalities since the inception uh, of the ICS about three years ago Um, so we recognise that tackling health inequalities means tackling inequalities in the round Mm -hmm. um, because health and well-being are determined at least as much by social and economic factors as they are by medical interventions. So we have, as you say, got some extremes of affluence and deprivation within our catchment. Um, So we've got very affluent parts of Suffolk, like Albra on the coast, uh, right through to the most deprived ward in England, uh, which is Jaywick near Clacton-on-Sea within our boundaries. Um, So I mean, I'll carry on if you want. No, go ahead. Uh, all I was going to say was that our strategy is, as an organisation, as part of that ICS, is focused very much on our 
role in the system, um, particularly our role in integrating care, joining it up so that people uh, that we serve feel that there isn't a boundary between the different parts of the system and in keeping people in control of their own health um, because that's a, a great opportunity for uh, leveling up people's ability to stay well uh, and to enjoy healthy life and so we do that us, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was Shane Shane tell us a little bit about how that works in practice then it, it sounds like it's about identifying priorities but also then being able to work in partnership presumably with some very different organizations but who are in the same place yeah i think that's ab absolutely right so um shared planning uh to develop priorities making sure our strategies between the different parts of the system are very well aligned um using data in uh increasingly joined up ways so particularly in in the pandemic we did a lot of joining up of data between local government partners and health partners, for example, to identify and support those who are most vulnerable and to target our vaccination efforts at the communities that um, were least able to get to the vaccination centres. So a good example of that is that is creating a mobile vaccination bus to go out to the communities that were furthest away from the vaccination centers to make sure they had the opportunity to get vaccinated and that resulted in tendering having the highest uptake of vaccinations in the over 65s in in the country um, which was a great success um, and it is down to as you say the excellent partnerships through the system that we're very proud to be part of, including general practice, pharmacies, community and voluntary sector organisations. And it's those partnerships that allow us to try and tackle inequalities in um, different ways than we would normally be able to as statutory organisations. And in that, we also see our, our role as an anchor organisation as, as critically important. It, we're, we're a, yes, we provide services, but we're in doing that, we're a major employer and our staff are also members of the community. So they're out there as part of the community acting uh, for the benefit of the community in their home lives, as well as as part of the services we provide. So some examples of, of how we do that. So um, improving access to care is a critical thing because and I think we'll come to this maybe later in the conversation but um, access to care and services is a critical factor in inequalities in in my mind from the evidence and I, that's available and I guess me. from some for some people in the areas that you serve they are literally maybe an hour two hours away from accessing services if they haven't got a car, presumably. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So in the Tendring um, district that, that's on the coast in northeast Essex, part of our area, that's the district where Jaywick is that I spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to get from there to our main hospital for the area in Colchester, it's two hours on a weekday on public transport you might not get there at all if it's a weekend on public transport. Heaven help you if your appointment for outpatients or your diagnostic test is at nine o'clock in the morning because mm -hmm. you just can't get there on public transport. And in the same area, the ownership of cars is in the lowest 10% in the country. So you're also very 
much less likely to be able to get access to a car either yourself or through a family member or a friend to get to hospital so it's just that physical distance the challenge of getting to the service is I think it's a big component of it and I guess when you go back to all that groundbreaking work really done by Professor Michael Marmot 10 years ago where he very clearly drew this link between wider inequalities and, and outcomes and then how that translated into health outcomes. Tendering is a, a great example of how you can really so easily see the why that happens. So if you're Absolutely. in a, a more deprived household with, with less access to, to money, frankly, maybe you're not in work earning any cash, not only, not only are you already a bit more remote from, from where the services are, it's that bit hard to get them. And presumably that then cascades through into people thinking, well, there's no point in me going, going to get myself checked up because it's going to be really hard to, to yeah. keep going to get any extra treatment I need if it's two hours either way on, on, on a bus. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got a, I mean, if you're, if you have a serious illness and most people will know what that's like through either their own experience or family members, it's not a one trip thing, is it? It's a series of visits and treatments or tests at at the, at, at the hospital site. And that's really daunting if you're, you know, if it, if you can't afford to catch the bus and even if you can afford to catch the bus, it's two hours either way and it's going to be that for several weeks it's a real barrier and it comes out in the outcomes we see in that area as well so um, we've got some of the worst cancer survival in the country in tendering we had the highest mortality from covid per head of population in the country in tendering it just gives you an idea of what that means in in you know the harshest possible terms for people in terms of their health outcomes and of course what you've been looking at is very much how you break that cycle yeah. with the tell us a little bit about the community community diagnostic hub in in Clacton because I think that's not only a really interesting point of where you've located it but also then if you like the staffing and and how you're looking at delivering all of those services to local people going forward be good to hear a bit more about that uh, absolutely and I think this is such an exciting example I was telling our executive committee all our you know medical and 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 managerial colleagues that run the services in the hospital about this this morning and I was getting very excited (laughs) because I think it's so important for our ability to change the future for the people of of tendering so there's it's a national initiative the community diagnostic hubs announced in March this year um, to essentially create more diagnostic capacity but particularly to link it to reducing inequalities in health for the first time so traditionally what would have happened is we'd invest in diagnostic services where our other diagnostic services are which are in our hospitals that are usually located for historical reasons in the more affluent parts Mm -hmm. of the the world Um, so we were, as soon as we heard that policy, we all looked at each other and pretty much, as one said, Clacton is the <laughs> yeah. place we should put yeah. this. Um, because we've got a community hospital in Clacton. It's a rather aging site. The original parts of it are Victorian. There's a Martello Tower in the corner of the site from the Napoleonic Wars. So, you know, it's a, you can imagine the state of some of the the site there is quite challenging and really hasn't been invested in and loved as much as it should have been. Um, So there is some space there to be used, which is fantastic because that's what we needed. Um, 
and we were successful in a bid for early adopter funding for that so we actually started delivering services in june when it was only announced in march which is you know it's pretty quick wow. for getting a service up and running amazing it's right in the heart of clacton in one of our most deprived areas um, and it's going to bring complex diagnostic tests as close as we can to the people that really need it and and as i said earlier they you know they really really need it so we we knew that access was the key factor in addressing the inequalities um, and the new facility each year is going to bring 50,000 53,000 extra x-rays six and a half thousand ultrasounds 71,000 blood tests 9,600 ct scans 7,700 mri scans and over 600 endoscopies into that population that they would have had previously to go two hours on a bus to get to and are you presumably as part of this having to talk to local people in Clacton so they know this is now on their doorstep because I guess one of the challenges is a lot of people obviously don't fortunately come into contact with the NHS a lot year, year on year so presumably there's a body of work to let people know this stuff is on their doorstep now and to help them understand how and when they can then access it. There, there is, and I think we're taking this in stages. So um, for this year, I think for the NHS and probably even into next year, the priority is going to be just getting the backlog of existing work down mm -hmm. so that people don't have to wait too long for their tests. So we've got the wait, we've got the people on the books already waiting for tests and it's those people we're going to prioritise for these, these new diagnostic services. Um, and then I think as hopefully if we're successful with the other parts of the bid that we're putting in later on this year, we'll be able to put some uh, building work into the site to bring permanent uh, CT and MRI capability and extend co-locate the services properly. And, and at that point, we can start working on the long term access model for right. how people get their tests there'll be some pathways that will i think ultimately be self-referral so mm -hmm. you know, if you have a, a lump or a bump in the wrong place or you're worried about your, you know changes in your bowel habit or lumps in your breast or you know bleeding when you shouldn't be those kind of things you might be able even just to you know ring up or go on the web and book mm -hmm. yourself in for a test mm -hmm. or even a series of tests I, I think you mentioned earlier the employment opportunities and to, to my mind that's at least as important as doing the diagnostic tests in the long Which run is really interesting in itself so i mean how many jobs what kind of jobs and, yeah. and what happens on that side of things um so so there are going to be um dozens of new jobs created by this facility there have been already and we're at the moment we're filling them with temporary staff but in in the long run our ambition is to be able to fill those roles with people who live and grew up in tendering mm -hmm. so we've put in a bid to a, a separate fund which is actually a local government fund called the community renewal fund mm -hmm. which is targeted at their deprived communities around England um, and we've been supported by Tendering Council and Essex County Council mm -hmm. to put that bid in, which is really exciting because they've never had a bid like this from health before. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of that is to work in partnership with one of our local further education institutions, creating a bespoke training programme to take people who are either school leavers or people who are needing to uh, take a career change 
um, to, to find new employment and bring them into the healthcare team at an entry level and develop their skills over uh, a number of years so that some of them will even progress through to professional qualifications and mm -hmm. form part of the clinical team there. Uh, and we're calling that our Pathways to Diagnostic Trailblazer programme. And we're, we're hoping if we're successful with that bid, we'll take 133 people from tendering into that programme in the first year alone. Which is absolutely fantastic. I mean, not only not only is it employment, it's more than that, isn't it? It's it's about enabling people to get a career, frankly, um, yeah. whilst also providing a vital local service you know, to the community that they're already part of, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, hugely exciting. And I guess the other thing is that once, I mean, I think the thing that often people don't think about outside the NHS is just how many opportunities the NHS has mm. for people to then progress. I mean, obviously, as I said at the, the beginning of this, you're a director of strategy. Now I'm going to guess, Shane, that your own career didn't, begin in that vein and I, I'm going to get no. you planned to be director of strategy you're obviously doing an amazing job and being very innovative which is great but tell us a little bit about your own career path within the NHS uh, no you're absolutely right and I you know I feel a bit um uh, in the way you framed the question a bit awkward that I didn't have a strategy to become director of strategy <laughs> well most people don't that's that's the important no. thing people need to know is it's not all planned generally no absolutely so I'm a GP by background Mm -hmm. um, and I, I came to this area um, having trained in the Midlands and, uh, and Oxford um, to take up a job as a GP. And I, you know, very soon started to get frustrated with exactly the kind of things we're talking about here, where it was difficult for my patients to get the right things to happen mm -hmm. easily for them. There were all these barriers in the way. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to, to get involved with some of the, um, the, the kind of management and planning side of the NHS in Essex very early on in my career, about nearly 20 years ago now. Um, and, and it kind of gradually... Uh, that interest grew and I started doing more and more leadership and management work in the NHS because it's a you know the medical side of my experience is is fantastic and it's great to be able to make a difference to people in their lives and see them see them grow and their families grow but you can make a difference to one person at a time doing that mm -hmm. whereas if you're doing leadership uh, and management of a service or a system, you, you can affect the outcomes for hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people all at once. And uh, to me, that's a, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and a responsibility to be able to do that. But it's so important to, to do that well and to connect it back to the reality that people experience on the ground. And I guess you know it takes it's a team isn't it because there are there are equally lots of people yeah. in the nhs who are just unbelievably dedicated and for them being on the front line it is what they want to do but the system relies also on on people like you who who want to kind of shape that that wider service and 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 are able to do that and i guess had you always planned to become a gp or is it something you know that came out of an interest in science what was what what was 
the trigger, if you like, for you thinking, I can do medicine. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I remember one, you know, my, both my parents were social workers, so I've always been right. interested in, um, in, in that idea that we have a responsibility to care for those who mm -hmm. are less fortunate or more vulnerable than us and I think that's fairly strongly ingrained in me um, so I think my interest in in medicine grew you know really from that background uh, they always tell you not to say that when you go for interviews at medical school you want to help people but I think secretly everybody does um, <laughs> so yeah well I you know genuinely true. do uh, and I think your description of really dedicated people is everybody in the health service everybody in our organization from the the cleaners and the hotel services staff who make the the meals and do the drinks yeah. right the way through to the consultants and the the nurses and the midwives and the therapists and the the managers and the executive team are all utterly committed mm -hmm. to doing the best for their community and it's it, it is a team sport in the way that you've described so I remember I, I originally wanted to be a surgeon I think rather than a GP mm -hmm. and I I had some heart problems and had to change career um kind of uh, uh, you know shortly after qualifying um but i remember being in a theater and, and thinking how does all this stuff get here yeah yeah so yeah exactly. when i ask for a scalpel there's a scalpel and it, that is why it's a team sport because getting everything together in the right place at the right time to be able to do the amazing things that our clinicians do requires an amazing team behind them it's a bit like the olympics isn't it watching the olympians give you know their thanks to all the incredible people who help them to jump higher or faster than anybody else in the world and it's very much like that with our services well i can certainly relate to your olympics thing because i was secretary state for transport when it was london 2012 yes. and um realized that fitting all those extra people in the city that was so congested we'd already introduced a congestion <laughs> charge was going to be quite challenging yeah. but it was as you say it's a, it's a team effort and i guess I mean, going back to the community diagnostic hub, actually, it's that message of making sure people understand the opportunities that are there for them now, purely because the hub's there as well. And what do you think in terms of making sure that young people know about the opportunities? What's the thinking around actually going into some of those perhaps communities that wouldn't necessarily think about a career in the NHS do you think that'll be part of how you actually find the people who can do a brilliant job there? It is absolutely, and it's something we've been doing for a number of a number of years already. But I think having that extra um, creating the employment opportunity at the end of it gives it something special. So that's some of the feedback we've had from our local government partners is there've been lots of training initiatives in that area but none of them have ever offered employment at the end of it in the way that this will so i think that's really important that there's a concrete end goal for people to get to that means they don't have to leave home to be employed at the end of their training but the sort of things we've been when doing for a few years um, are things like uh, the outreach work we do in schools with our talent for care team who go out into schools mm -hmm. and tell them about the health service and you know we have over 300 career pathways in our own organization that you could follow um so so that's great to go out and talk to pupils where they're learning but we also bring them into the organization so we run master classes and uh, in medical and allied careers 
we do takeover days when we bring people yeah. into our services so they can experience what our laboratories and operating theatres and our wards and departments yeah. are like and they can actually get their hands on some of the equipment they can mm-hmm. you know, practice stitching and resuscitation yeah. and you know all these great things that that um, give people a real flavor of what it's like to work in health because it's just the endless opportunities to develop your skills and and career and in all sorts of different ways I mean I'm a finance person by training I would never have thought to do finance in the NHS and yet again it's a crucial part of keeping this show on the road isn't it it is and we've you know we've got I mean I have to say it's my great pleasure to work with our finance team because they are not everyone says that Shane no, no, and I, I, I recognise that, but we've got a finance team that you you couldn't tell the difference in the meetings between the clinical team and the finance team in terms of their absolute focus on the care of the patients and doing the right thing for our community. And I think that is delightful. I mean, they've won awards for their innovative work recently, and you know, the the effort they put into changing things to make them easier to do, better, more value so that we deliver more for our community is absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And and in a sense, it's like going under the engine. You know, if if you yes. can fine-tune the engine so it runs, this is how I used to see it. If you can yeah. fine-tune the engine so it runs well, then you know, everybody can perform better, you know, yeah. and, and that's what everybody else, everybody else is interested yeah. in. But of course, Shane, the other thing I really wanted to ask you about was the Iceni Centre. Obviously, we talked, you know, generally about what you're doing from a place perspective, um, which is fantastic, but you're also specialising in, in things like surgical training, aren't you? Yes. Uh, so the Iceni Centre is a, is a fascinating little gem nestled in the heart of this uh or big organization um and it, it's one of only five advanced surgical skills centers accredited by the royal college of surgeons in the whole world wow. um and it, it grew really around uh, an, an amazing clinician called uh, roger motson who has retired now but is was really one of the pioneers of keyhole surgery and uh, there's a, a whole group of surgeons who've developed such high levels of expertise that they attract uh, people to their training courses from every populated continent on the planet Um, and they travel out to other countries to help them establish their training programs all from Colchester which is is fascinating to me really Um, and the Iceni Centre is part of it's part of the work that I lead and uh, it's one of my great sources of joy to see the work that that they do Um, but we've grown it over the last few years far beyond its beginnings in 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 keyhole surgery to encompass all clinical specialties in the trust Um, we've got a a state-of-the-art simulation suite covering a whole range of procedures from endoscopy to complex abdominal surgery to robotic surgery um, right in a in a beautiful bespoke building uh, in Colchester where people can come to train um, we also have an international fellowship program for doctors nearing the end of their consultant training usually um, from other countries around the world where they can come and join us for usually between one or two years mm-hmm. to hone their skills with our um, expert clinicians but also to help provide some of the services 
in in the local area so that brings you know people with really high levels of ambition and motivation and expertise from around the world to come and help look after our community and it's fantastic i mean it's incredible and then of course close to home as i understand it you, you know local school children who yeah. are interested in this area also get chance to come and see it which i think must be absolutely amazing to be able yeah. to do at that age it is it's fantastic i've mentioned the master classes that we run earlier and they're run at the icini center where right. we have a a mock operating theater and all this simulation equipment so people can come and you know practice on wow. uh, mannequins they can practice trying to take blood or fit cannulas do resuscitation yeah. uh, have a have a go at the robotic simulator to practice being a surgeon um you know it's a fantastic opportunity to get hands on in this wonderful simulation center that we have it's absolutely brilliant and i mean just within and across the trust obviously i think we talked about all those different pathways you're creating for for people to get a sense of what working in the nhs is like and, and some of the opportunities but for progression through the nhs um within the trust what are some of the things you're looking at to make sure that all of that talent you've got coming in mm. does actually get a chance to, to develop and then go into some of those, those amazing roles you've got that are more senior? Well, I, th I think there's a number of elements to that. So um, one is just the availability of opportunities to, to train. And I think we, you know, we became a bigger organisation three years ago when when the trust that ran Ipswich and Colchester hospitals merged to create this organization and just having you know we've got 11,000 staff nearly now so having that number of staff and that number of roles creates a lot of opportunity for people to progress and to move and develop in their careers because there are always opportunities opening up as other people move on to better things um, so the scale of the organization makes a huge difference our links with our community and uh, system partners create other opportunities for movement into um, delivering you know developing your role in a different setting so going rotating some of our posts out into the community or in into the hospitals mm -hmm. through our community hospitals or into primary care um, is a fantastic career development opportunity um, sending people abroad through uh, some of our international programs of work stimulates people's thinking and opens their eyes as to to the possibilities of how to develop their services better apprenticeships i think are a key element so uh, at the moment we're setting out on a journey to become an apprenticeship training provider in our own right mm -hmm. so that we can double the number of people who can access apprenticeships every year uh, and that obviously that's a you know fantastic opportunity to get that and so training how many um, how many apprentices do you think you'll end up taking on i mean it's fantastic that you're yeah. so involved in all of that uh, we're, we're anticipating having about 500 a year when we're wow. at full speed um which is which is super um so so that's great um all you know all these good things really it's really fantastic and i remember when i was at the dfe and and the apprenticeship levy was coming in and that wasn't without its complications but you know having a discussion about what it would mean for public service employers and this sense that 
it was a challenge to introduce and, and not uncomplicated, obviously, um, for some of the parts, for example, of the NHS that had their existing talent pipelines and, and qualifications. But actually, I think overwhelmingly, there was a sense that if we could work through some of those challenges, that actually the apprenticeship route could be a brilliant way of getting a much wider talent pool available for the NHS to draw on. So it sounds like that's something that you've really grasped now. Yes, I think I think we're in the early stages of, of taking it to the next level, but you're you're absolutely right. It's about developing the diversity of skills in um, really non-traditional roles. So, uh, you know, medical care has been very uh, driven by kind of national professional bodies, royal colleges, mm -hmm. for example, um, and the supply of of those kind of qualified staff can't keep up with how quickly the demand is changing um, because those pipelines of training are five ten years long so we need people who can develop and acquire skills and competencies in parts of those roles very quickly mm -hmm. and therefore allow our qualified clinicians to um, manage a, a different case mix to manage the more complicated patients and oversee a bigger group of patients supported by these other uh, other new roles. And I think that's where apprenticeships is going to play a really important part. I think the other the other element I think of this though is diversity and equity for people from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So um, we know that we've got um, if you look at all the different types of different backgrounds not just um racial ethnic minority backgrounds um but you know people from different levels of uh financial or educational background or even you know different communities within in the uk and the white community so you know kind of white irish communities or uh traveler communities we have staff the the majority of our staff are actually from what you would in this language call a minority mm -hmm. see what i mean so we've got a we're in that process of kind of recognizing that diversity in our workforce already and trying to make sure that our opportunities that we're creating within the organization are equitable for all those different groups from all their different backgrounds and um, we've got a fantastic network called embrace which is our um uh, racial diversity group um, which is helping us to engage with staff from different backgrounds help us understand as an organization better what their needs their specific needs are um, to make them as as productive and happy as they can be as part of the workforce and also for them to be aware of the opportunities in the organization and in the system to develop their skills and their aspirations for their careers and I think going back to that point around access and how the different communities, both in terms of geography, but also different sorts of people, you know, that are that are part of the, 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 the area that you serve. Actually, the best way you can get that right is by having people who know them intimately, you know, part of your service and, and at that stage where they're able to shape it. So yeah. I think it makes complete sense, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's about how we listen. Um, that's the key there, I think. And just to, just to finish, I mean, obviously, you've had a, I mean, it's been obviously been 
challenging but fascinating career and, and a lot more of it to go. But if you were giving some advice to a much younger Shane now about how to how to sort of manage it, you know, maybe um, your reflections almost so far on, on your own career and the advice you'd give someone who was much younger, a younger Shane, as it were, what would it be, do you think? Um, I think it's to look to people that you you see doing interesting things and to to talk to them and understand their journey seek their advice mm -hmm. um to not be afraid of taking opportunities when they're presented right you know my career has not been a straight line at all I've done dozens and dozens of different roles um, and every role has been different but it's been an opportunity to grow develop new skills understand something different about the immense complexity that is in the health service and public services in the round and I don't think there's any individual alive that could tell you everything about everything that goes on in public services it's just far too big but to take those opportunities to do something different and grow in a different direction mm. so basically take the initiative and don't be afraid afraid to try things and, and find yeah. out what they're like yeah i think that's brilliant advice shane it's been fantastic having you on the podcast um, and, and absolutely wonderful to get a chance to work with you. So Dr. Shane Gordon from East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.